I've lived in northern Monmouth County in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. Now, I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in this part of New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Lasapio, talking arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. What is it that drives music and gets people on their feet and on the dance floor? It's the rhythm section. It's the bass and it's the drums. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Chris Plunkett, the premier bass player in this area. He is a songwriter, a teacher, a session player, and a producer. Chris has set a really high standard for bassists in this area, and he has won praise from people across the country. Chris is very recognizable on stage. He has his own unique style, and he's one of those players that have brought bass players to the front of the stage. Together with my husband, Gary Dates, he formed the rhythm section of Line Drive, and they predominated on the Jersey Shore for over 40 years. I'll ask him why he thought an instrumental fusion jazz group could make it on the Jersey Shore while the Asbury Park sound of rock and roll and the disco sound were predominating. Hello, Chris. Hi, Lucille. I am so glad to have you here today. For many years, you were the bass player in Line Drive. And of course, Gary, my husband, was also a member. But you were a founding member of the band, right? Yes. Who started it with you? Timmy Boyce. Did the band become what you expected it to be, or was the trajectory really different from what you anticipated? Ooh, that's a good question. In the beginning, it was what I expected it to be, 100%. We had a great time. We were writing, playing our own music. It was great. And then we got into becoming the, the wedding band thing. The wedding business was very lucrative. As you know, we did very well with that. Yeah. Things work out. It's just that you can't have both and focus on both. Yeah, it is, it is really hard to concentrate on your creativity and your craft and make money. Yeah, that's hard to do. And, and you're very blessed if you can do that. We really didn't have the business sense to get the manager that we needed. And without that, there it is. So when we were doing that, trying to write and everything, we needed that person out there. Finding ways to get you to make money. Yeah, the way that we wanted to. Now, what what year did Line Drive start? The end of 79, I came off the road from the Hank gig, Hank Williams Jr. gig, and I met Timmy. We started writing little songs together and playing, and then we thought, let's start a band. So that was the, uh, the towards the end of 79, beginning of 1980. And there was another drummer named Kenny Rugg, and then we found Rick. So that's Rick Brunimer, the Rick, sax player. I'm sorry, Rick Brunimer, <laughs> the sax player. Gary was a better fit, so Gary came in, and that was the band. And then we got a host of different piano players. Chris McEvitt, I think, was the first one. That was yeah. great. That was the band to me. That was the height of disco, right? Yeah. So yeah. here it is. Disco is king. What made you think that there was an audience for instrumental music? Well, we were headstrong. We liked it, and we were somewhat educated in it, each one of us. It was a, a pretty cool natural progression for all of us at the same time, which is unique. Like Gary, me, and Rick McEvitt were listening to the Chick Corea and the Pat Athenies and Spyrogyra and all those kind of bands. And we really didn't have a singer. They said, wow, we can do this really good. And we started doing that and it hit. Yeah. Probably everybody in the world is familiar with the Asbury Park sound. Right. 
Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, they're emblematic of the kind of music that people associate with Asbury Park. But Line Drive wasn't rock and roll and it wasn't even close to the Asbury Park sound. So why did the band become so popular? And did the popularity of the band surprise you? I think it became popular because everyone was trying to emulate those guys. And we didn't. We were just being ourselves. And it was like, boy, nobody was playing that. And evidently there were a lot of people that liked that kind of music. Did the popularity of the band surprise you? Oh, yes, it did, because we had no idea at the band's popularity. Yes, I was surprised, and I loved it, and so did we all love it. We were just, like, besides ourselves, going, wow, this is great. People think instrumental music is just easy listening music where you have to be sitting in your living room with a glass of wine. But the music that Line Drive did, you could dance to it as well. It was instrumental, it was, I guess, fusion jazz, but it was danceable music too. So people would go to see the band and be up there dancing the whole night. what's called the real book and you're playing all the songs from the 40s and the 30s and the, some from the you know mm. all that snoozers yeah so you know that's and then but not us we were like yeah we can rock this stuff we can groove this you were more in the big band kind of genre in that it was instrumental but it was stuff people could dance to just like yeah. big band music was yeah yeah well so, put. Now, at one point, there were so many venues for live music in this area that it was really hard to keep track of who was playing where. Of course, mm. back in the day, there were those little liners at the bottom of the Asbury Park Press. But with dozens of bands, it was really a seller's market for bands. And you could always get a gig. There were places that were begging you to play there. Yeah. Now, there are still bands out there playing, but it amazes me that they are making the same amount of money per night than you guys were making in the 1980s. Amazes you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's all you're making? I mean, like, it was bad enough back then. You didn't make very much money. This, this is like 20, 30 years later, and they're making the same amount. Yeah. And 20 years from now, they'll be making the same amount. I yeah. Think. So knowing how the, the value of live music has depreciated, do you think that there is a future for live music? Well, yes. I think there is. I think it's going to be limited, especially now since the COVID thing happened. They draw a lot of people. Places don't want that by law can't have a lot of people right now, right? So how long is it going to take for the COVID thing to be gone, for yeah. the vaccines to work? Yeah. That'll all come back. And I think there's a future in it as long as the bands don't care to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> Guys are going to have a day job and do this at night to play for fun. There'll always be music and bands. I've noticed in the last couple of years, there are a lot of duos and trio work, less band work, because the money got even worse than it was. When we used to play and make $300, maybe. I want to ask you about your reputation. Can I sign a yeah. disclaimer? <laughs> no, I want to ask you about your <laughs> reputation as a bass player. You are a player of some renown. Not only in this area, you toured with Hank Williams Jr. and you've done some session mm -hmm. work. How did you make the move between country music and instrumental fusion jazz? Well, first I was always listening to that music. Timmy Ryan was the violin player, or quote-unquote fiddle player, 
with Hank Jr. And he would school me, and he would say, listen to this. And he would run all these scales together, and he would play all this jazzy-type music. And Tim loved all that kind of gypsy jazz music and swing music on the violin, which was close to country swing music. Really, the roots came, I think, from Ireland and Scotland, and it became bluegrass. And bluegrass, man, you had to be able to play on the ceiling. You had to master your instrument. And it was the closest thing a musician could be if he wasn't a jazz player. They were, like, very similar to me. So was there a big difference in the way you played? between country and jazz. Oh, oh yeah, and this is going to sound pretentious, I guess, but it all depends <laughs> on the groove. There's a different groove and a different set of chords and a different headspace that you have to get into. Waylon Jennings once said to my friend Tim, and then we were working on an album in the studio, he said, there's no minor chords in country music, because <laughs> three chords in the truth, that's it. <laughs> so I, I was good at that because of the rock and roll that I had previously learned, like the Almond Brothers stuff and... The Beatles. Yeah. If you listen to early Beatles music, there was a lot of country stuff. Oh, yeah. and so it all kind of crossed over, and I was just open to it. I didn't want to yeah. become just one-dimensional. Well, you I, know, that's a nice segue to my next question, which is, you know, you've played country, you've played rock, fusion jazz, R&B, rock and roll. Given the choice, what's the music that you would most prefer to be playing? Ah, uh, if, if I had to pick one, well, it's I can't. <laughs> but I like blues. I like the blues aspect of swing music that lives inside of the Almond Brothers type stuff and the country stuff like old country music. Just nothing but feel music. I don't like pop music. I'm sorry, pop music. It's just and modern country music to me is just pop music with, with a, little, a twang. Little twang. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you left New Jersey and you moved to California. You had some degree of success out there as a studio musician, right? Yep. What was the biggest challenge that you faced musically when you moved back from California? The biggest challenge was, what am I going to do now? Yeah, finding I'm work. Finding work. <laughs> you know, like it always was. But when I went out there, Christine and I went out there, I went to school at Musicians Institute. When I graduated that and they hired me as a teacher. And then I used to get fed gigs. Elvis impersonators, go to Reno and play with the oldies groups like Chubby Checker and all that kind of oldie stuff. I was doing that circuit. I, I came back and I got back in the band and I wasn't pushing that. I didn't call these guys up and say, I want my job back. They wanted you back. They wanted me back and I, and I was like honored and I felt this is great. And there was instant work. Yeah, and Gary always talks about the incredible synergy between the players on Line Drive. Yeah. And, and you can feel it. Times that you guys have gotten back together, you had a reunion concert at, at McLoon's in Asbury Park a couple years ago. It's just this this energy, it's it's bigger than the than the sum of the parts. People just really, really respond to it. And the yeah. players seem to really respond to it. You guys just click immediately. It's unusual and it's magical. If I, I was can just use gonna say term. magical, yeah. yeah. We've all had this discussion amongst ourselves in the band. Where did we mess up? Because every band that's huge has that and we had that. I think the difference is all those bands end up, they hate each other. Yeah. So, well, yeah, we never did. Right. We That's all, what you did wrong. You liked each other. We liked each other. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, maybe in the long run, you guys are actually better off. Yeah, that's you know, possible. Because so many of these guys, they're divorced, they're drug addicts, they're dead. You guys are still here. And we still play together. Right. And I think we will still play together. Because the interaction, that was the great thing about Line Drive. We had this incredible interaction right. with each other. I'm going to move on to talk about bass players in general. I've noticed that a lot of bass players have really big personalities. And one that comes to mind is Stanley Banks, who played with George Benson. Yep. He always seemed to try to upstage George Benson on stage. And I've noticed that with a lot of bass players. Is that my imagination? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you're allowed to. See, like in some bands, bass job is behind. If you step up and start, you're out. Like Billy Joel's bass players never step up. Gary Talent won't step up on Bruce. You don't do that. George Benson gives him a certain leeway because they that have the same thing line drive had. We communicate. Here's what I view the bass as. He's like the catcher on a baseball team. He tells the guy what to pitch. He positions the players. He runs the whole thing. And the bass player, for some reason, is that kind of a head, that kind of guy. He's like, whether it's right or not, <laughs> I don't know, but that's where their heads are at. I always joke with Tony Cimarosi, another uh, bass yeah. player. And I said to him, you know, bass players are frustrated lead guitars. They want to be the lead guitars, but they want to play the bass. Well, they want to be Paul McCartney. Right. Well, he changed, McCartney changed everything. Was the bass your first choice, or did you start with another instrument? No, I played guitar. I was like 13. And then we had the band, The Shadows. Stephen Van Zandt was in the band. There was a guitar player named Joey Hagstrom. Joey Hagstrom was really, really good. The best lead guitar player probably there was at the time around. So we all got a meeting and they said, we want Joey to come in, but Steve plays guitar and sings. Will you mind playing bass? And I said, I'll try it. And I really liked it. And then it dawned on me, there's maybe 15 guitar players on this corner and one bass player on that one. The guy who played bass was going to work right, all the time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about the rhythm section in the band. Gary's a drummer, and he talks about how important the relationship is between the drums and the bass. And some people say that that is the heart of the music. What are your thoughts on that? Exactly. The heart of the music is the groove and the beat. So everything else is icing on the cake. Of course, That's... lead guitarists might argue with that. No, if the band's playing, if the bass player and the drummers stop, there's nothing. There's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the most important thing to keep the beat. What drove you to make the decision to add a singer? We could make more money. Now, I know this story, but how did you find uh, Jose Lu? We were auditioning singers. I forget how many people, 20, 30 came by auditions. We were about ready to quit. Oh, there's one more guy out there. Jose comes in. We started playing, and he started singing, and I think it got through one verse, and we said, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. Yeah, he's like, pretty amazing. He's amazing. Jose is amazing yeah. on all counts. Always and forever, you and me were meant to be for always, always and forever, you and me were meant amazing writer, amazing singer. He's a really amazing keyboard player. And a ranger, too. And a ranger, yeah. yeah. And a producer. Are there other artists or other bass players that you really look up to, and, and do you find yourself imitating them or incorporating some of their methods into the way you play? Yes, you can't help but do that. My first was McCartney, of course, because he played bass like a guitar, because he was a guitar player, and the same thing happened to him. They went to him and said, one of us has got to play bass, and it's you. <laughs> and he attacked it as being a guitar. And he stood out front. And then the next one to me was Jamie Jamerson from the Motown era. Yes. Whose groove was just infectious. And then the Almond Brothers bass player, Barry Oakley. And when he played with the Almond Brothers, he was like Jamie Jamerson playing with a rock band. And then Jaco Pastorius, and I remember Kenny Rugg played his album for me and I didn't touch my bass for like a month. But you take things from them. And I think anybody that says they don't is kidding themselves. So in addition to being a player, Chris, you're also a really accomplished songwriter. How many songs have you written or co-written, do you know? Getting near 50 or 60. Oh, wow. 
great to write with Line Drive. I would come in with a new song every two or three days. Jose would match me. And you and Jose wrote some songs together, didn't you? Yep. In a perfect world, hmm. what would you be playing and where would you be playing it? It's split. I just have two loves that I can't get away from musically. And one is that country swing blues thing and the other is groove-oriented jazz music. In a perfect world, I'd be able to play both those things. One night do one, one night do the other. And where would you be playing? I would like to play festivals, places like the Count Basie, concerts opening up for other bands that did similar music. You wouldn't want to be headlining? Yes, yeah, sometimes. I don't dream that big anymore. <laughs> When the COVID thing happened, everybody stopped playing, yeah. right? You're so geared to the stress of going out and find the gig, going out and find the gig. Got to play the gig. I got to be there a certain time. I got to get dressed. I got to get my equipment. I got to carry all my equipment in past these people in a restaurant, set it all up where they don't want me to be because they're eating there. The whole business, right? I did not miss any of that. I, and when it happened, I learned how to relax. Yeah. What would be musical hell to you? Musical hell would be stuck in the worst wedding band you could imagine, playing the chicken dance and the electric slide and everything I can't The Macarena? Stand. The Macarena, yeah. That would be hell. Is there anything that, that you want to promote? Do you have a website? Is there some place that people can look you up? You can find me on Facebook under my name, Christopher Plunkett. I prefer personal messages for stuff like that. Is your CD available online anywhere? Just through me. So last question. If somebody told you that they were planning to start a career as a musician, what advice would you give them? Don't quit your day job. <laughs> really, I would just say you have to suck it up and be true to your art and true to what you're doing and take all the punches that you're going to get hit with. Keep on going and really learn your craft. I mean, learn your craft. Like learn to play a few different styles. Don't be a one-trick pony. Learn to play different things because then you will work more. And if you work more, more people see you. It's hard. That's a tough life. Chris, thank you so much for making the time. Sure. Thank you for asking me to do this. I love the arts, and I love to talk, and that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucille Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk.